You're listening to the Better Two Podcast with DM Needham. Hi, gang. Donna here. Thanks for tuning into the Better Two Podcast. I greatly appreciate your support. Let's talk a little bit about Naomi. Naomi, Naomi Fries, is living in Melbourne, Australia. When she was in university, she graduated and she was about to go on to graduate school and she ended up having a mental breakdown. At the time, she went through a lot of treatment. In fact, she ended up going into a psych ward. And we discussed that journey, that very dark journey at times and how long it took her to get help and how she's become an advocate about suicide as well as writing. Um, Suicide awareness is something that she is very open about speaking. And she's also open about speaking about her journey to get the proper care and the diagnosis of PTSD and how PTSD, we have a discussion about this, that PTSD is not only for vets, that a lot of us can have post-traumatic stress disorder and not even realize it. We also discussed her book that's coming out on World Mental Health Day called A Very Long Way. It's available on most platforms where you can get an ebook, and it's also going to be available in an audiobook form on Audible. So before we dig into the podcast, I will say that if you have any triggers and you are a little squeamish talking about mental health, then maybe this is not the episode for you to listen to, because we do dig into some deep subjects, and she does talk about being put into a facility against her will. But I think it's a very honest conversation and I think that you can benefit from it. So please stick around and listen. Hi, Naomi, how are you doing? Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well, how are you? I'm doing fine and you are in Melbourne, correct? Yeah, we've just, I think, recently broken the record for the longest city in lockdown. So, you know, um, in the world ever or something like that. So, yeah, just um, chilling at home with the blanket at the moment. When there's records, that's not one of the records you really, really want. Nah, not really. Um, I mean, there's a couple of states in Australia still open um, at the moment. But, yeah, we're, we're us in New South Wales are kind of so where Sydney is, yeah, just still in lockdown (laughs) well hopefully that gets lifted soon um so when we when i was discussing with your representative she was telling me that you had written a book and it's a lot about your mental health journey so why don't you talk to us a little bit about what precipitated you writing this book and you coming to terms with the mental health issues yeah for sure so Oh, I'm not sure where to start. So I suppose I'll start with the actual story of what happened itself, I guess. Um, I mean, I think I've probably, maybe since I was young, I've probably been predisposed to like emotional vulnerability, I'd say. But um, I mean, it it never really affected my life in the way that like I needed to take medication or anything like that. And then um, after I was graduating from Um, university I was about to start postgraduate journalism um, and I ended up having a complete nervous breakdown Um, and that experience was probably more shocking than it sounds actually um, because I lost the ability to write which had always been my 
um, find a kind of solace and saving grace in life that I like to like freely express myself and stuff. And then, um, yeah, and I couldn't even speak in sentences actually. And then the culminating, you know, factor, I guess, was when I found myself in the back of a police divisional van on my way to a locked psychiatric unit. And that was an experience um, in itself, really. That could be another book. Um, So, yeah, then uh, the the recovery road from there, as you can imagine, is pretty long. (laughs) Um, So it's been over a 10-year journey. So I'd say I started really kind of getting my life back on track after about 10 years. And it was interesting. Um, So at that that point in time when I knew that there was more to life, like I I kind of got the courage after seeing uh, my new doctor a few years ago, you know, she promoted the idea that um, recovery is self-actualization, but not only that, like it's like a physical injury. So if you want to get better, you put in the work and you see where you can get to. Like it's, it's about what you put in is what you're going to get out. And if you've got determination and grit and a few things going for you, the chances are your recovery is going to advance. So I wasn't scared of hard work or, you know, and I, I was determined and, so I took that on and she was kind of the first doctor who'd given me hope in the sense of that, you know, you can, you can come out of this. And I think that's just a really important thing to have in a mental health recovery journey, to be honest, that sense that, you know, you can get better. Um, so then that was the, at that time I thought, you know, there's more to life and I'd started writing again because I'd been able to sort of, you know, um, put my, get my thoughts back in place. And I wanted to express myself again. And I had some lucky breaks with my writing and, you know, got syndicated in a few cool publications and that was really going well. So I pitched the idea of like um, a freelance writing business. And I ended up at the Ausmumpreneur Awards as a finalist for a big idea. And that was a really cool experience. By chance, this was at the same time. So it was in Melbourne in 2018 and then this lady was talking at the conference, the awards conference. She got up on stage and she was like, look, you know, and it was like, you know, when they say it's so cliche for a writer to say this, I'm kind of embarrassed, but like when like someone talks and it's just like a lightning bolt hits you, it's if they're like there's a room full of people but their message permeates you. And she said to, she said to the, well, she didn't say just to me, she said to the whole room, she's like, you know, if you've got a story inside you that you want to tell that you think maybe I should write a book like I think people need to hear this or it's yearning to be told she said you know you owe it as your duty to society and the community to share it because that's that's your gift and you know someone out there needs it so imagine keeping that to yourself like wouldn't that be selfish kind of thing and I just thought oh my gosh like it just hit me like this is amazing so anyway I didn't know how all this would unfold, but I was there for writing anyway. By the end of the conference, I was like, well, I think I'm not sure about this business stuff, but I really need to write this book now. And now that lady's actually my publisher. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. So my book's actually coming out on World Mental Health Day, which is October 10. And um, it goes into my whole journey of recovery, talks about my lived experience and all the things that challenges I've faced along the way but also um it's I've I'm very passionate about suicide prevention for a number of reasons including my own lived experience but also I have experience of having lost someone close to me as well 
And um, so I wanted a two-pronged approach in giving back to the community because I've, you know, been gifted a lot of support, obviously, along my journey. And so as well as telling my story and hopefully giving other people like a narrative of that, yes, you know, recovery is possible, um, as well as that I wanted to give back in a systemic way. So 50% of the sales proceeds from my book are actually going to a charity in Australia called Black Dog Institute, which, um, you know, they do a lot of work around suicide prevention campaigns. And I'm really passionate about that because I don't know, I'm not sure what your statistics are like, but ours are draconian in terms of how many people we lose to suicide each year. Like it's it's double the national road toll most years. So, I mean, that gives you a pretty good indication of where things are at. It's pretty dire. So, yeah, that's how it sort of <laughs> all came about. <laughs> Well, that, that's an, a big journey. And I, I want to commend you for the way you phrase something, because a lot of times, okay, I read, I read cards. So I read, I read cards and I'll read, I'll be reading somebody and I'll mention to them that, you know, that on, on depression and anxiety and things of that nature are tantamount to an addiction. You have one trigger, one something, one symptom that can push you back into that state of mind. And you're battling with yourself. And a lot of people look at me when I say that, like I'm insane, because how can I say that that is the same thing as a drug addiction or alcohol or something else? But it is because still there is that one trigger that can set you off on that path. So I applaud the way you were saying that because so many people don't get it. They think depression and anxiety is just depression and anxiety, but there are triggers that can set you up. And you know, suicide rates are high here. Uh, and yes, I lost somebody to suicide. So I, I understand that. And it has been, it has been a big lesson throughout my life, listening to other people talk about their journey where they almost committed suicide or not. And there's a gentleman from Australia that I interviewed this last season who was 16 and took a flying leap off a building. And he's paralyzed wow. and his name's Matt and he's now an advocate. He goes around and talks to people, but at 16, he's 21 now he's in, he's from Australia, but at 16, he snuck out of his house and climbed up on a roof and took a flying leap because he was that he was looking for outside validation and he couldn't find it. So yeah. I mean, it was go ahead. I think, and that, that's one of the things I guess I talk about in my book, like when you're in that state of duress, like it's, I mean, it's one, it's one flawed decision that can cost your life. Like the, there's no sort of, like, I mean, I think to, to a certain extent, the grace that saved my life also compelled me to help others. And if part of that is sharing my story and telling people that, you know, like you can hit rock bottom, you can be institutionalized, you can be forcibly medicated and you can have all these awful things happen you can be traumatized and you can come out of the side other side and do amazing things and live a happy life and have kids and be married and you know do all those dream things like I think I owe that as well so it's just it's really yeah like I think I'm just always acutely aware I guess in the back of my mind of like the cost of suicide, not even just to the individual, but to the community, to families, to emergency service worker personnel. Like it is, 
unfathomable like the outcomes and yeah and I just I also just like me really miss the person obviously that you know I wish was still here and I feel like there's always something missing but I don't want that for anyone else either so so what kind of let's circle back a little bit you said you were done you were getting ready to go to graduate school what kind of set you up for this this breakdown yeah so it's interesting we we don't really know exactly what happened, but my the current school of thought by my doctor is that what happened was because I had like a, a neurological issue um, and it affected my, my mobility and my physical health like quite dramatically. And so because I'd had trauma earlier, she thinks that it was like a, like a reactivation of trauma that spiraled out of control. So because I felt like I was like I felt inside like as if I was paralyzed and I was scared that I wouldn't be able to move or cope or escape and all that thing it was like a re-traumatization where I went back to a place that I'd been before that I couldn't escape from and so that trauma actually turned into like a trauma-induced psychosis which back when that happened to me I guess you know like that's probably maybe 13 years ago um there was, you know, people knew about PTSD, but there was a lot less known about um, PTSD in terms of like trauma-induced psychosis. So on first presentation, like for all intents and purposes, they thought maybe I had schizophrenia. And so they were diagnosing me as if I was. And that was part of the problem because for my, you know, my, my latest doctor, unraveling all the medication and stuff that I'd been put on over the years. And like, I'm not joking when I say like, it would not most people around like out um you know like hardcore depot antipsychotics some of which you know arguably wouldn't even give to someone who had treatment resistant schizophrenia and I didn't I had PTSD all along so it's just yeah it was really unfortunate combination of issues and I think my mental health just really spiraled out of control like I wasn't I, I also I suppose it got to the stage where I wasn't medicated like I'd probably always been predisposed to a bit of depression and stuff like that. So maybe I have like a genetic vulnerability there. Um, but yeah, it just got to the stage where I was also, you know, starting to get a bit nervous about medical treatment and stuff. So I just didn't get help early enough. And that's another, you know, thing I talk about in my book and when I'm, you know, discussing with people in the community, like one of the most important things for me is if you feel like you're slipping, like early intervention is, like, I mean, prevention's better, but early intervention is imperative because if it gets to the stage that you don't even recognise that you're deteriorating, that's when it can get really dangerous. Yeah. When, when I was working, I was an entrance claim supervisor. And there's a reason I bring this up because I, my, my husband swore that I was close before I left my job, close to having a nervous breakdown. And I would pick him up from the train at say 4.35, about five o'clock. And from five o'clock until 10 o'clock when we went to bed, I was going on and on and on about work and all the stress of work. And I would sit at my desk and I would be like, I'm gonna quit, I can't handle this. And I remember feeling, thinking I was having a heart attack at my desk. And you know, no one really tells you it's anxiety. No one really you know, because and you don't want to admit that you have might have anxiety because of past trauma. And I remember when I finally when I finally left, 
I had my friend and my husband both say, this saved you, you leaving saved you from a nervous breakdown. And, and, it, and divine intervention on how I left was because we had a love seat that had a recliner and we were sitting there and my husband closed, I had put mine down and I was about to get up and he put the recliner down on my foot and I ended up having to have ankle surgery. Oh, wow. So divine intervention. And uh, so I ended up going to a therapist and she diagnosed me with PTSD. And of course, when you think PTSD, and this is this is the big thing, like you're saying, you know, PTSD, people think of, well, you must have been at war. The thing is, a lot of us, if we had a traumatic childhood, and I'm not blaming my parents, I'm not. But if you've gone through a lot as a child, that is kind of ingrained in you and you've learned how to live through trauma. So when, once again, we're going back to that trigger, when something has put you into a box where you feel so claustrophobic, which is me sitting at that desk with all the stress, it just blows up and you don't realize it. You don't realize it. And then, you know, fortunately, like I said, divine intervention. Otherwise I'm, I kept, I kept going. I would have kept going back. And being, dare I say, the punching bag, just taking it. But, and I'm sure there's a lot of people listening because there's a certain point in there that even when you're sleeping, then you start working, doing your job and your stress level keeps going up. So you're, you're constantly going and going and going and never catching a break. So, yeah. so you, I know you understand. (laughs) You actually put that so eloquently and I was having this conversation with a friend the other day because we were both quite um, like quite uh, had physiological reactions. I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but we had some pretty hardcore protests in Melbourne like last week um, to do with like, yeah, the vaccination and the unions and it was just a bit of a political mess. But anyway, um, it got quite violent. And then I was saying to her, you know, it's actually... I think people with trauma history sort of, it's like as if we tend to learn that conflict is dangerous and then it can really blow up. But not only can it manifest emotionally, it can manifest physiologically. So we were both starting to feel really like immunocompromised and just wrung out and tired and it's it's amazing. And I think with, um, so me for me coming to terms with the fact that not only have I got PTSD, but I've also got functional neuro disorder, which is like there's conjecture about whether it fits into psychiatry or neurology, and there's a bit of both. So I actually see a neuropsych for it. But the the thing is, if you if you're psychologically stressed, it can manifest as neurological symptoms. So it really complicates things as well, um, and and it can be really confusing. Like when your body just starts randomly playing up, you're like, uh, okay. And and I recently I I was actually had a scary experience. So. Um, the side of my face actually just dropped and um, I got taken to hospital by an ambulance because they thought I might have a stroke. Um, but actually it was just, yeah, it was part of the condition. I was feeling wrung out and stressed and the side of my face just dropped. So it's just, um, it's FND is actually quite fascinating. There's, there's a, some people wake up with foreign accents. Like it's quite wild. Um, it's just, yeah, it's an everyday adventure and journey. learning to live with it I can tell you (laughs) Uh, it's it would definitely be a learning curve I'm sure so yeah what made you okay so is there you know I know you're a writer because you also have articles that you've written you know you're a freelance writer have you ever thought about delving into the fiction world or do you prefer to deal with 
these are the facts. This is what I want to write. And that's it. Um, well, I would have, I've always preferred nonfiction, although I'd have to say in primary school, when I first started writing, I did like process writing, which is, you know, basically just ch like writing ch child stories and stuff like that. And, and I, and I'm working on like a, a non-fiction based kids book next which is pretty exciting but I think I prefer non-fiction but I mean some people would argue that because I do a lot of opinion editorials and I guess some people would argue there's an element of fiction there like it's based on conjecture everything's you know um relative so I don't know I I think I think non-fiction suits me I do a lot of like processing my thoughts through my writing so that's been another interesting thing that I think that if I hadn't have written my book and I hadn't been inspired by my publisher, Karen McDermott, all that time ago, like there are things that I would not have just emotionally dealt with at all. And it's really interesting. So when you put your story together, I guess you get to reframe the narrative. And I think there's a level of understanding in that and also seeing things from other people's perspectives and opening your mind about your own reactions to things and being able to analyse, like, how you responded in situations. Like, it is eye-opening and it is, it is cathartic as well. I think, you know, something you're saying about looking at your response to other people's responses, I think that's a lesson that it takes a while to learn. And you have to be, you have to be more forgiving of yourself at times. Because, you know, we are, we are taught as children to be at such a high standard of you need to act this way, you need to be this way, you need not to say your opinion, which I mean, that's changing nowadays, the narrative is changing on that. But for a long time, you were not allowed to say that you were allowed to be this way. And that's it. This is the expectation. Yeah. And, you know, finding your voice and then realizing, I mean, this summer, I had a, a dispute with somebody and it wasn't really supposed to be a big dispute i was just vote you know you're always told state your opinion state how you feel and it was because somebody had not given me the reaction that i thought they should give me so i stated how i felt because it kept building and building and building in this it just it felt like this person really wasn't my friend so i stated the fact and the person flipped a switch and came back at me hard and I look back at that now, and it, it's irrelevant, but I look back at that and say, okay, well, my expectation was that she would ask me how I was doing. And she never did. And because she didn't, when I voiced that, she got upset. But when I look back at this months later and reframe it, the expectation was mine. I was putting yeah. my expectation on her. That doesn't make what... The, the ultimate response she gave me, correct. But I also admit that, yes, maybe I was wrong. And I think that's that's a learning process. When you learn that you, you have to look at your own expectations and not put them on other people. That is where your growth happens. That is where you realize, okay, I can't expect, you know, I can sit here and manifest things, but I can't manifest the outcome of other people's reactions or emotions. That is on them. I can't make somebody else happy. Yeah, that is so true. I love that. Um, there's so much to be said about that. So I think I have just come to terms with the concept of writing my own permission slip as well. So because of when we were young, I, I think like, um, you know, what you were saying about 
the fact that we were told, you know, how we should be and what we should be and all those kinds of things. I think that's still really prevalent, especially here in Australia for young girls. Like there is so far to go in terms of that. Like I think, you know, gendered roles and all that kind of thing, like it's just, it's a jarring. And th- and that's another thing I had trouble with in my mental health journey because a lot of the doctors I saw were like kind of dinosaurs. Like they had done their training in a time that wasn't relevant to me, you know. So it was actually hard to just kind of flip the switch on some of those dialogues. Like my new doctor, she's a lot younger. She's also a female, so she kind of gets the, you know, the and embodies the, the similar things to me, like in that she knows how gendered roles can impact your, your spirit, your body, your soul. Like it's just a totally different experience. And she... She also, like, I don't know, I just think it's very hard for people to relate to someone else's journey. One, if they don't have the lived experience, like, they can try and treat them with medication, but that's only part of it. And then, like, but also, like, if they have no insight into what that person's life, like, has been like in terms of their socioeconomic status, their gender roles, like, there's a lot more to a therapeutic alliance than just giving medication to people. Like it's just, I don't know. I think I have had some really interesting conversations with people in the medical field and um, about how like sort of in terms of psychiatry, you know, because there's very limited diagnostic testing about how the perspective of one doctor can really shape someone's treatment and how it would be amazing. Like if we could have some more, you know, like, more thorough testing I guess like for if, if if it was ever available you know so that people not only know you know not necessarily what's wrong with them or what but like just have a more holistic approach to getting better and getting well and their version of well and what well means for them as well so I yeah I, I, I I'm not going to disagree with you about anything you're saying there because I can tell you for a fact, when we had a male doctor, my husband and I would go to the same primary care doctor. And it, and the thing is, it was a good thing because we'd both go in a room at the same time. And if one of us forgot or we didn't want to bring it up, the other one would rat the other one out. So it was good that way. But <laughs> the care of treatment by this doctor was totally different. He would dive deep into my husband and me. It was kind of like, eh, when he left the practice and we ended up with a lady doctor, she is still my doctor today. In fact, she moved clinic and I, I still continue to go to her, even though it's a little further away because she's thorough. And yes, she knows things. She knows how to, she knows what it's like to be a woman. And here's a very interesting, you, you'll find this interesting. So when I was 27, I had a primary care doctor and she's like, have you ever thought, and sorry, guys, sorry, I'm going to say this. Have you ever thought about a breast reduction? And I'm like, no, because at 27, your neck's not bothering, your shoulders aren't bothering, it's all fine and good. So now I have neck problems and I'm older and I've gone to a neurosurgeon male and I've gone to an orthopedist male and both of them, both of them. When I asked, shouldn't I get a breast reduction before I have neck surgery? Oh no, it's not going to mess with your neck. Can I strap some weight to your chest for like 30, 40 years and let's see if it messes with your neck. Yeah. A woman would understand that. Yeah, it's really hard. And that's what I mean. Like, 
it's perspective. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's really, it's, it's a judgment call. And, and that's, what's really hard about psychiatric medicine, I guess, like for the practitioners, but also for the patients who get second opinions. And like, I'm not going to pretend that nepotism isn't a, like a thing in psychiatry. Like if you get a second opinion, the chances are you're going to get palmed off to the person down the corridor who's their colleague. So like it, it can be problematic and yeah. that's in, and that's even in like, private systems you know and the public system's got it's a whole other like cast of issues so it's not easy it's not easy to get treatment but I think the thing is once you find the right fit for you and you build a therapeutic alliance it's just like gold like and the important thing is just to not lose hope and just to keep trying because I know I had some really rough times like getting to my doctor but she is just the stuff (laughs) But that's the thing. She understands you. She understands your physiology. She understands that. Yes, sometimes. I mean, that's what men don't understand women as far as our cycles. They don't understand, you know, I mean, and and it's always gotten a bad rap. It has always gotten a bad rap when you look at at how it's been portrayed through history and how, you know, well, women are too emotional. Well, sure, we get emotional, but you guys are just as emotional. You just bury it. That's yeah. the, that's the sad truth. And if we go back to the dynamics of of male versus female, we are taught that we're, you're too emotional, and they're taught to not be emotional. Yeah, I think that that whole too emotional rhetoric's crap, to be honest. Because if mm-hmm. that was true, why would the gendered violence be the way it is? Like, I just I don't buy it. I think it's just you know, like uh, I don't know. I think it's like rhetoric, basically, that's just been adapted and fed down the line and yeah. no one's bothered to question it or if they have that been ignored as well so I don't know <laughs> well, that, I yeah. mean like I saw a meme actually I think on Facebook like um okay I'm too emotional but I've never punched a hole in plasterboard and I thought that is so perfect <laughs> like, yeah. it just summarizes everything yeah there there's a there's a place here um that is a sports bar and every time we would go there my husband and i because we used to have like the special on burgers or whatever he would go in the men's room it would be like we'd go in there on a monday monday or tuesday and for for lunch and he'd come back from the bathroom and he's like okay well this week the hand dryer's been ripped off the wall again oh this week the the mirror's been broken oh this week Finally, they took the hand dryer out and they just put paper towels in. But yeah, every week when we, and we didn't go every week, but every time we went, he'd come back and he'd be like, something happened in the men's room. One time the toilet was crashed. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we could have a whole another podcast about the toxicity of alcohol. <laughs> I feel like it's a whole nother episode, to be honest. And I'm trying not to be too judgmental because when I used to drink, I was pretty wild too. But like, I don't understand the bathroom vandalism. I have to be honest. No, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> although, I mean, I, when I was a younger girl, I was dating with some, I, not dating, I was dancing with somebody and this guy who had been drinking came over and he's like, I want to dance with you. I'm like, I'm dancing with him. And he got all pushy. He pushed me. Now, how, how romantic is that? He pushes me because I don't want to dance with him and decks oh, the guy no. I'm dancing with. And it's like, and his friends, of course, come wrangle him and pull him out. And they're like, I'm sorry. It's like, it's fine. But it was just kind of like, what, was that supposed to win me over? I mean, what the? <laughs> I think, you know, like, I don't know. I think that's a pretty three-year-old response, really, to get the girl's... <laughs> 
attention <laughs> that you yeah. like by giving her a slapping. Like, <laughs> really odd <laughs> but me- I mean I think yeah we we tend to regress when we're drunk I think but that's new levels <laughs> <laughs> that's like really really bad and I mean they they, they pulled him out it was just I was kind of taken aback because I was just like I don't understand this okay and it wasn't any I mean I just met this other guy and we were dancing it was nothing why would you do that I don't know so we have a term, I don't know if you guys use it. Do you talk about like, because in Australia, there's a lot of people like guys on the internet in the MRA movement that are like, we call them incels. Do you have that? Like yeah. involuntarily celibate? Yeah. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, we actually, we had, we had one that made national news because he went around killing a bunch of people in California. Oh, wow. You guys do take things to extremes over there, don't you? <laughs> Sometimes, and I don't mean to laugh about that, but yes. Yes, there are um, there are a lot of extremes here. Yes, yes. Yeah, like, actually, America is pretty wild, like, from an outsider's perspective. You guys tend to up the ante in everything. Makes us look like a little backwater. I grew up in New Orleans, so when you're talking about alcohol and partying, not that I, I mean, I left when I was 16, so I hadn't hit that phase in my life yet but I watched it and I mean for Mardi Gras anything goes back then in the 70s it was like you know I saw my first drag queen and people were lifting up their top you know here to get some beads and you know I mean you look very young to be around in the 70s I am going to be 54 in a couple of weeks no, well, I thought you were my age. No, nope. <laughs> no nope. way. Good genes, good genes. Unreal. <laughs> I usually don't tell people my age, but yeah, yeah. So good genes, but thank oh, you, wow. thank you very much. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, um, yeah, I stopped drinking completely <laughs> when my son was uh, just pretty much a baby still. So um, yeah, I, I, I was a toxic drinker. Like I think. You know, there's actually a lot of research at the moment going into the fact that um, like people who have had traumatic lived experiences can, um, you know, react badly to alcohol, not just alcohol, but drugs in general, like all kinds of things. And um, it was really interesting because I was always, I always had a problematic relationship with alcohol. Um, But then it just got to the stage where, yeah, I think my my husband actually staged that intervention like he was just like look I'd hate to say it but you know if every time you drink there's a problem you're a problem drinker and I was like "Ooh, that hurt (laughs) and that (laughs) zing yeah and that was pretty much the end of that career (laughs) yeah Um, so uh, and and he wasn't doing it in a way to like put me in my place in any way. Like he's a really loving guy and he didn't want a designated driver because <laughs> everyone was like, oh, he just wanted to party. I'm like, no, he, he'd seen enough. Like <laughs> it was time. <laughs> um, he just, yeah, he called it as he was seeing it. And I kind of needed that actually because it's hard. Like, I mean, the one time I did see myself on video drunk, I was traumatized. Oh. Like it was awful. And if I had probably had that experience again, I think I would have stopped earlier, but he he was quite aware of what I was like. So it was a fair enough comment. Yeah, I have a couple of pictures of uh, the times when I've been drunk. And uh, the first time was, you know, it's rather amusing to look at that. The second time, well, yeah, 
I blame my, I blame uh I had left my first husband and I had gone down to New Orleans to see my my dad and my stepmom's like hey let me take you and your friend out to the French Quarter to drink yeah yeah um <laughs> those pictures I'm not very proud of at all um yeah. because it's like this just this person that if you look at me and you know me you look at this person and go there's no way that's you Wow. It's an amazing how we change though. Well, like I mean, how, how, how alcohol and drugs have the capacity to change us. I have, I don't smoke. It's scary. I don't smoke, right. but I will tell you when I have dr- been drinking in the past, I will smoke. Well, all right, all right. let me wait. Maybe I should clarify. I puff. I don't really inhale. I just, but I haven't done that in 20 something years. But yeah, it was, it was something when I had a drink, I wanted a cigarette if I was at a bar. But most of the time when I would go to a bar, and I'm, I'm very adamant about this, there's only been a few times when I've been drunk, I would actually go before cover, get in, get some water, and then go climb on a speaker and dance to some 80s music. And I was good for the night. I was good. Not even a podium, a speaker. That is impressive. You guys do take and things to the next level. The, the, wor- the worst was um, there was a club in Shreveport called Cowboys, and it was New Year's night. And we're going back to 1987, 88, and the Jody Watley petticoats, all the petticoats under the skirt. And I'm up on the bar dancing with a couple wow. other girls. So yeah, I'm, I, I may look nice and reserved, but I had a few wild times, but I was sober. I was drinking water. I just, you know. A streak of coyote ugly. <laughs> exactly. Coyote ugly movie. before coyote ugly. <laughs> I love it. It was a good movie. It was unreal. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, I actually still struggle um, with addiction in some ways. Like I still smoke and I have... This ongoing, it's, it's actually a nightmare. It is a nightmare. And I don't know, the cost of cigarettes are incredible. Like are you, how, like over here, it's like, I guess, $50 for a packet of cigarettes. It's got to be about that. But I'm going to tell you a trick that my, my father-in-law, who stopped smoking, did. And he, he passed. And when we cleaned out his house, we found this. So my, my husband told me that his dad said one day, I'm going to quit smoking. And if I decide to start smoking again, I'm going to smoke. For, I'm going to finish off this pack. This was like in the 1970s. He died in 2012. And when we were unpacking, when we were going through his stuff. We found the pack of cigarettes. He never smoked again. So if he would have smoked, he would have smoked that cigarette that had been in there since the 70s. He didn't seal it in a Ziploc, nothing. So just think about how bad that would have been. Wow. And that's what See, kept him from think, everything. Uh, See, I don't think even that would stop me. Okay. <laughs> like, it's awful. <laughs> I think, I, I think like, you know, if, if I ran out, I'd go resort to tea bags. Like, it's just, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've tried to give up so many times and I'm just trying to get to this, like trying not to get to the stage where I give up giving up. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, th- I really, I actually... I mean, I, I don't know if it's true. Maybe I'm just telling myself this because it is an addiction, but I feel like I enjoy it. Like it's just, um, yeah, I grew up probably from when I was 16 and I will just, you know, I sneak off with my friends or my auntie and have a horizon menthol and I never stopped doing it. Like 
um so I don't know yeah I just I actually I did give up for like quite a while so like maybe 18 months at one point and that was actually when I was working um at the hospital on the adult mental health inpatient ward and the reason I gave up was pretty powerful actually is because the patients at that time well they still aren't but they can't leave the ward to smoke and I didn't want to trigger them by like smelling of smoke and yeah. they're locked in there and confined. And I didn't want to go in there smelling of it so that then they would be triggered and what and stressing. And, you know, so I, I just stopped. But then as soon as I left the job, I was like, oh, good. Oh, here we go again. Unreal. Don't start kids. <laughs> uh, well, there's a funny story. Once again, the husband, he had a brother, an old, a slightly older brother. And the older brother's like, hey, hey, you want to smoke? It's like, sure. So he takes the pencil sharpener, empties the shavings into a piece of paper, rolls it up, gives it to my husband, says, go ahead, take a drag, lights it. My husband said there was flame shooting down the back of his throat. Oh, my God. Oh, (laughs) no. Yeah. So you... (laughs) there's, There's a warning for kids. Don't try that at home. Yeah. And that is just, you know... The American equivalent of bouncing your sibling on Lego. <laughs> we just do things like pretty moderately over here. <laughs> no, there were there were some there were some stories he told me having siblings that I'm just like I am glad I was an only child because <laughs> yeah. yeah no yeah no. I do touch on in my book you know the squabbles and stuff I kind of look back and think it's funny that I used to have with my sisters in particular on long road trips like she breathed on me she looked at me like, it just used to go on and on and to get to my grandparents house from where we grew up you know it was like two two and a half hours at least I guess um and you know, it was back, we, I grew up in the 80s, like, and I was born in the early 80s. And my mum was a teacher. She thought nothing, like very Australian though, take off her Aussie flip-flop, you know, back over the bench seats of the old Kingswood, <laughs> yeah. whack us across the legs. Like it was just, it was part of the trip. Like yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was just the adventure. <laughs> and and we knew it was coming. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just, it's very different now. And I think that's a good thing, to be honest. Like it's, and also it's very counterintuitive when I reflect now that like when the kids are fighting, you get involved by whacking them. Like <laughs> it's just, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm glad, I think, I think, you know, it's good that times are changing. Yeah. I mean, I had two stepdaughters and this may not, I mean, I was young when I had my two stepdaughters. I think I was 22, 23, 25 at the tops. And I remember the oldest one who was, I think at the time she was about eight, pushed the six-year-old and hit the six-year-old. And I just got in front of her and I said, all right, you want to hit her? You got to hit me. And she looked at me and she's like, what? I said, well, technically you're bigger than her. And I'm bigger than you. So it evens out. So if you want to hit her, you have to hit me. No, it's okay. And I did that with my <laughs> step siblings as well. Because at a certain point when I was in high school, I had a stepbrother and stepsister. And my stepbrother was hitting on his sister. And the first weekend I, I go up to meet them, my mom and stepfather are like, you're going to watch them. I don't know these kids. Okay. I'm not a babysitter. I've never babysat and he's doing this. So yeah, I just pushed him up against the wall. I said, you want to hit her? You hit me. No. Okay. 
and it really <laughs> balances it out it, it, it stops yeah. the fighting and and I hate to say it but I think I gained my stepbrother's respect at that moment yeah because it was just kind of well, like oh <laughs> yeah well that and that, look that's another thing like when when kids and like kids kids can be <laughs> horrible you know we know it we were horrible probably when we were little too but um I think like there's it's a really interesting dynamic when a bully gets stood up to as well. Like it's just like that moment of shell shock and mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it, it's very life-changing for everyone involved, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from what I understand, he was terrorizing her a good bit and it just, I just got in front of him because it was just like, dude, chill, you yeah. know, of course, chill wasn't the word back then, but you know. Yeah. So what do you you know after lockdown what are you what are your plans besides the book launch well um i've actually got a ted talk coming up as well so um i'm planning on recording that in studio as soon as lockdown lifts i had wanted um it to come out around the same time as my book Um, i just thought it would have tied together nicely but um because we've been in lockdown for so long and in and out it just hasn't happened but um it will be coming out and i'm I'm doing it through the um, Dairy London Dairy Studio. So it's actually going to be on the power of storytelling. And um, and I guess my idea, because TED Talks are based on, on, you know, an idea concept, the concept is around, like, imagine if we embrace storytelling as a suicide prevention tool, like how would things be different? And I'm, I'm really passionate about that. I think it's, it's an amazing conversation to have. So I'm keen to get that out there. But um. Also, I've got some other projects in the pipeline and I would ultimately, my, my goal um, after after this, you know, period's over and we can sort of get back to COVID normal or whatever that looks like, I would like to set up like a, a diverse um, writing incubator so that I can actually champion people who would otherwise not be represented well in the literary and publishing spheres. So um, people who would be underrepresented in terms of like be it gender, if they're like maybe a refugee or from a cold background or, um, yeah, like maybe have a disability or a different lived experience. I'd just like to, you know, I feel like, you know, in some ways I've, I've had my turn. Like I've, I, you know, I've got to heal and I was kind of great, graciously handed the mic and I've got my story out. But I think that, everyone's got a story. I'd like to champion more people to tell their stories because I know the process of telling your story can change your life as well. That's, that's kind of why I'm doing this. I mean, besides, yeah, now I, I'm having some more musical guests and stuff, but the whole fact that even, even people that I get on here that talk about music, they still have to talk, share a story. I don't want somebody just to come here to promote something. I want somebody to, to be real. I want somebody to tell their story. You know, and I had a, a gentleman who was on The Voice, the American version of it, and his dad committed suicide and his best friend committed suicide. So even somebody that you may not suspect, they've dealt with that issue. Um, yeah. And my very first podcast I did, which was a half hour episode, was about saving my mom the first time. And, wow. you know, ultimately she did it. And, and that's the thing, you know, when you're talking about suicide, from the other point of view, from somebody that's a family member, when your hands are tied and you can't help them and they're continuing on. I mean, I still, the phone call, she, she, she tried, she called every day for a month. And I tried telling my stepfather to get her help and everything. Cause I wasn't living in the area. 
But when she told me that she wanted me to go in her master bathroom and find her in the shower stall, she was going to blow her brains out and she wanted me to come find her. And she was doing it in the bathroom so there wouldn't be that much mess. And I remember telling her, firstly, I told her to get help. But I remember telling her, if she loved me, you would not ask me to do that. Because how do you ask your daughter to see such a horrific thing? You know, I had, yeah, I had a conversation recently about the carer gig, about just how, how hard it is from every, and I didn't always feel like that, you know, because when you're in the throes of mental illness and you've got someone like, instructing you what your next move should be it is not good like you just you don't feel like um you know like at that time sometimes you're not receptive to feedback you know when you're struggling with mental illness but at the same time like the carer gig is so hard because you have to actually watch the person go through it and still be helpless like if you're going through it you have capacity to change at least not even what's happening but how you're responding Mm -hmm. the the carer gigs just yeah I I take my hat off to my husband and people who, you know, just try like loyally and stoically just to make any iota of difference to make someone else's life easier because it's so selfless and they get no acknowledgement. Like the the work that carers do in the community is just, it keeps everything going. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't, I don't mean any disrespect to anybody about if you're contemplating it, please get help. You know, that's, but there's also a, a certain level that, and you, yeah. this comes from this, you have to forgive yourself if your family member does it, because there's certain people that are on a mission to do it. My mom was on a mission for many, many, many years, you know, talking to my dad, it was from when I was a kid. So, Sorry. You know, no, that's okay. Talking to my dad, I mean, it was many, many times, you know, so he, she tried it in high school. She tried it after I was, you know, living with my soon to be husband and had kids. So certain people are on a mission and you have to come to terms that sometimes you can't save everybody. And I'm not, I'm, I'm all about suicide prevention and awareness, but you also have to understand that some people don't want to be saved. And what can you do? Yeah. What can you do? And you know what, that's that's such a powerful point because I think I actually, until I transferred into my new doctor, I didn't realise that I was playing a role. Like I was playing a role in my illness. So like you have to make choices, but I didn't actually realise I had another choice. So like, for example, the doctors had said, oh, you know, she probably won't go back to work. She's not going to recover. She won't come out of the public system. She'll always be on antipsychotics. And at that point, like, I thought that that's just how it is. So it was how I was. But I didn't know, you know, that that I, I could get better. So it's very interesting, like, about when we choose and, like, that you can play your role up to where, where you're given permission to as well. So it's just, it's really complicated. And, uh, you know, it's it's so hard to judge where anyone's at. But that I just, yeah, it must have been really awful experience. I'm well, really I, sorry. I have to share because you said something, and and this is about the role to, that you play. So in high school, she there was a thing that led up. She took pills. She, you know, that's the story of me saving her. But I'm giving you the the short version. She was in a coma for three days. 
They had to pump her stomach. Mm. She's in a coma for three days. Then they put her on a psych hold. Now, mind you, if she took this many pills and she, when that didn't initially work, she was going to go out and start the car in the garage. That I put a kibosh on and she took, this is when the pills started kicking in. She becomes very proud of herself because bipolar was not diagnosed at this point and a lot of mental illness was not, you know, it was very narrowed at this point because this was 1984, I think. So yeah. she, she gets out and she just tells everybody, oh, I'm burned out. I was burned out. I'm okay now. I was burned out. Does not get any other treatment. Right. Does not seek any other treatment. Then fast forward, um, I'm about to move to Dallas. I'm in, I'm in a band. I'm dressing kind of wacky i guess you would say i'm wearing hot pants and a velvet coat and a big hat something that was not normal for anybody it's for a creative person sure she's like you have mental illness you need to go to the mental house hospital and get checked out i'm like what yeah you need to go get checked out okay so i go and i'm sitting there contemplating my own mental status at this point going am i crazy so I go and do all the tests, all the psych tests and everything. And I talk to the guy and he looks at me, he goes, why are you here? I say, because my mother thinks I'm crazy. He goes, you're not crazy. You're creative. And if you don't get out of her house, you're going to die because she's going to kill you. She's going to drive you nuts. So you need to get as far away from her as possible because she is not sane. You're not crazy. You're creative. And so I went back home and I told her, and you know what her response was? They don't know what they're talking about. Like, yeah. OK, so it's... I applaud you that you're willing to face your mental health and face who you are. I mean, I admit, yeah, I have a therapist and I talk to my therapist on a regular basis. And I think it's very healthy and natural to have a therapist and yeah. to address your mental health. Yeah, it's just like physical health. I mean, if you break your arm, you don't let it go untreated. But I, yeah, it's. It's actually, it, I, there was a long period of my life, I guess, like leading up to my, probably my breakdown, I'd say, that, you know, I didn't have the insight though, like of how not only, um, of not only how sort of un, unsettled I felt, but like the implications of that on my physical health as well. So like it just all came crumbling down. I just, I'd hate, I hate to see other people get to that stage. I mean, they do, but it's it's not a healthy way to be I think that that that's you know how counterintuitive the taboos around mental illness are like and not having those discussions is just holding everyone back well you know I I've talked about this before my husband was terminally ill and at a certain point I was told this and for years I took care of him and I mean he was functioning he was mobile he was on dialysis he was legally blind so he had parameters that he couldn't deal with and he had depression because yeah if you know your time is limited your depression is going to be heightened after he passed my primary care our primary care doctor looks at me and she goes do you realize how much anxiety you were under what are you talking about I, I don't know what you're talking about because you live it just like the trauma we were talking about as a kid you live it and I and it's, I've come to the realization recently that for me, after this, you know, it's a year, year and three months later, I've come to this point where it's like, 
you've been living in fear. You're still living in fear. What kind of fear are you living in? Because you were in that fear for so many years. How do you get out of it? And that's, that's the last few weeks. That's what I've been trying to think about. It's like, how do you get away from fearful thinking? Yeah, it takes work. It takes yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy and, you, you know, a lot of growth mindset and self-examination and, you know, oh, I think sometimes I just, you know, sit back and think like, um, like, is it, like, is what, is the way I'm feeling healthy and why am I, and then I'll, I'll be like, I'll often I'll write it out to get to the bottom of, you know, where it is. But it's just, it's interesting the things that pop into our heads and bodies and you know thoughts and stuff about like I, I tend to be a pessimist and I, I well I mean I'm less of it these days but it's actually I think it's like you know a DNA thing like I feel like I come from a family of stresses like we're always if I'm not stressed I'm stressed about being stressed like it's just you know <laughs> well, they say I mean they say it's generational that some of our, yeah. our, our emotional status is generational and when you start unpacking your parents and your grandparents because your your grandparents weren't the same people that your parents knew i mean if you really know you know that whole thing about well they never treated me like that how come they because they don't have the responsibility and they could do whatever now they want with you yeah with the grandkid but you know you were talking earlier about the fact that the people protesting well, that's going to heighten your fear. That's going to heighten your anxiety. And I mean, that's the, the thing with COVID last year, you had all the, the talk of everybody dying and it. And I mean, not that that's not happening now, but it was just so heightened. Yeah. And we're still kind of, you know, how do you step back from fear? How do you get out of it? And, and fear can control you so much, you know, and, and it goes back to, it's a four letter word, but there's the fear of failure and there's the fear of success. Yeah. There's the fear of living life or fear of being, you know, giving in so many yeah, it's a lot to navigate yeah. yeah for sure um and also yeah and the fear of being judged is like the the one yeah. for me it's just like oh what if they think my I'm not sure how appropriate this is actually this expression but I really I really live for it <laughs> my auntie used to say to me when I was little because I was always even as a little girl I was like but what if but what if and she's like, well, what if your auntie had had a penis? She would have been your uncle. Like, no one would care. It wouldn't make a difference. <laughs> nice. And I'm just like, it's so true. Like, no one, it would be, no, we wouldn't know any different. Like, there's but, not a what if. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but the thing is, we're taught to judge and play what if and, and all these things. And, you know, you're, you're, my therapist will be like, you don't fortune tell. And it's not no. so much, yeah, I read cards, but this is a totally thing. It's like you sitting there going, it's the expectation thing. Okay, well, they should react this way. This is how this should play out. Well, no, this is life. Life is a freaking roller coaster that you make one, you know, you leave the house a moment later, you're stuck in traffic. You know, yeah. it's unpredictable. And, and that's, I think that's where we need to reel them. We need to look at the mental health aspect of everything about life because, Growing up now, especially now, these things are always, I mean, you grew up in the 80s. Granted, you were a little kid, but you didn't have, you still had that freedom. You still had the, you didn't have everybody knew where everybody was. You didn't have, oh, let me look at this. You could still know a phone number or an address. Yeah. Now it's like, 
well, hmm, I know my phone number. Do I know anybody else's phone number? <laughs> nope. I only knew where people were because their bikes were parked out the front. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, or their roller skates. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's 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 definitely different it, there's a lot of challenges to navigate for our kids I'm yeah I'm not looking forward to you know my son getting into the teen years because I think boys boys are really gross as teenagers anyway they just tend to just grunt and stuff from what I've heard and smell my my son's a delight at the moment so <laughs> um yeah I'm not really looking forward to that but um yeah well there's just a whole evolving world out there and I'm actually only just coming to terms with a lot of technological advancements to be honest because you know after you have a nervous breakdown and you're on hardcore medication for a long time like you forget that technology involves in the interim and then you're like all of a sudden like I'm not sure how this remote works and how do I flick it to Foxtel like (laughs) so that's a a whole new other set of challenges too so it's a whole new world really (laughs) Yeah, it's like coming out of a coma. Wow. <laughs> but like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So where can people get your book at? Yeah, so as of October 10th, my book will be available online through Booktopia, Amazon. Um, also Audible, it will be on, and Fishpond. Are, so you, those. are you narrating or is somebody else narrating? No, I've got a narrator, but she's amazing. Like she's just perfect. So yeah, it'd be great. So is there anything else you would like to share with my listeners? Oh, I wanted to say thank you so much for having me, but also like in this format, because, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you've been open with me too, because it's not always easy. Like as the interviewer or you know the person who's hosting to actually be as open as well like and it's all and I really feel a lot more comfortable to divulge you know my own experiences when you're open to doing the same so it just makes it really a lot more authentic so thank you you're welcome you're welcome I I you know that's one of the reasons when I started thinking about doing the better two podcast it was like okay I'm asking people to lay themselves bare And the reason I did the first episode with me by myself and talking about my mom was because if I'm asking you to come up into my space and share something personal and heartfelt, then I better lay myself bare. Yeah. Because it's only fair. And that's why to me, if somebody's listening in and they, they can gleam something either I say, or you say, or both of us say, and it really resonates, then we've done our job. I've done my job, you've done your job, and we've made a difference. We may never know it, but the Mm -hmm. fact is, if somebody connects with it, that's what's important. So I'm glad you like the format. I've I've been told by a lot of people that even a couple of singers are like, I really like this because it's it's not the traditional interview. So yeah, it's refreshing. Thank you. Thank you. So I I will put all your, you know, your link for your books and everything. I'll put that on uh, the the bio and stuff on the website your website are you going to have your website back up and running or is that yeah yeah it will be yeah (laughs) it will be yeah just want to make sure I will have that also in the bio for the podcast so thank you Naomi it's been a pleasure thank you so much for having me wow okay so that was a great conversation um Naomi you know she was very candid and You know, I think that when we can have an open dialogue about 
not only mental health, but the way that men and women are treated differently as far as mental health and even physical, you know, regular medical, medical health. I think it's important that we get the treatment that we need, whether, you know, if it's a mental illness, if it's a physical illness, it needs to be addressed because the mental can morph into the physical. So if you are feeling stressed or you're feeling overtaxed or you just need a moment, take it. You know, while the world may seem like it's going a thousand miles a minute and you can't get off, step back, take a few minutes. You know, if you got a lava light, stay at the, stare at the lava light, stare at a candle for a few minutes, anything that's going to calm you, that's going to help you de-stress, find a way. You know, when we talk about meditation to help calm people, which we didn't in the episode, but when we talk about meditation to calm people, you know, to calm your soul, it doesn't have to be closing your eyes and getting lost in the, you know, the darkness. You can find a candle to meditate on. You can find something that's just going to bring you peace. And that's really important because we are living in crazy times and there's a lot of fear out there and a lot of chaos and a lot of stress. And we all need to take a step back and treat ourselves a little bit more kind a little kinder to ourselves would be a very nice thing, a very important thing. So thank you as always for tuning in. Um, and I greatly appreciate it. And I hope that, you know, Naomi's book, Naomi's book, a very long way. Yes. I'm a little tongue tied. I think it's going to make an impact and she is going to be an advocate for young writers that, you know, maybe don't have a place for a platform. And I'm sure her Ted talk is going to be amazing. So keep an eye on her because she's got a lot to say and she is a great advocate. So once again, thank you guys for tuning in and I'll catch you next time. Bye. You're listening to the Better Two Podcast with DM Needham.